Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Good day to you all. Once again, as I've mentioned previously on the Think Humanities podcast, we are in the season of announcing new members to our Speakers Bureau lineup. Our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau features a a great group of uh, the Commonwealth's finest scholars, historians, writers, and poets. A description of each presentation can be found on our website, kyhumanities.org. And if your church, civic club, organization, classroom uh, is looking for a presentation, check out over 60 unique individuals that want to share their story with you. And one of those new members of our Speakers Bureau is with me today. Dr. Mason Smith is a senior lecturer in the Eastern Kentucky University English Department. His presentations for Kentucky Humanities include The Truth is Out There, UFOs, Monsters, and Cryptids, (laughs) if I'm uh, pronouncing that word, which Webster's doesn't uh, recognize, by the way, and that's where I'm going to start in just a minute, or his second presentation, which um, is of great interest uh, interest to me and and would be to you if you're a a mystery detective reader, the whodunit caper, mystery writers and detectives. So, uh, Dr. Smith, welcome to uh, our podcast. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I I really am going to have to jump... uh, uh, immediately into the definition of, of cryptid because I, I just was uh, not familiar with cryptid. I was familiar with uh, cryptic. Uh, and so I went to uh, my friendly uh, app, uh, Webster's app, and, and it said no definition for cryptid. So, <laughs> Well, I think it's a new word and it may not be a legitimate word, but it's uh, short for cryptozoology. And it's the study of uh, yet unconfirmed but reported animals, such as Bigfoot or animals like that. Um, things that people see, report, but that don't make it into the official catalog of Kentucky wildlife. Uh, or lore, well, as, you, yeah. as I think you, you, you use here, Kentucky exactly. lore. So before we get into uh, that discussion, tell me uh, a bit about yourself, your background, uh, your tenure at uh, Eastern, and what you did before that. Okay. Well, I grew up in Muhlenberg County in Central City and went to a college at Center College in Danville and then worked for the newspaper business for a number of years at Owensboro and later in Lexington briefly and um, worked at uh, University Advancement in the Public Relations Office at EKU in Richmond and then went back to uh, get graduate degrees in English. And and then for the past uh, 15 or 20 years, I've been teaching uh, American literature and freshman composition at Eastern Kentucky University. And um, your, your course load there it, uh, allows you time uh, to delve into some of these uh, other areas that you have an interest in. Well, uh, luckily, one of the joys of being a uh, professor type is that it lets you do some research in some areas. And, and when you're looking at areas like this, um, I think they are. I've always been interested back from when I was a kid. Um, but also, one of the things that we do with our first-year comp students is you've got to look at evidence. Okay, well, what is the evidence? for this claim or that claim. Well, how, how would we know that? Is that good evidence? Um, 
what's the logic behind it? So a lot of the, the standard readings are, you know, it's a, something political or something, you know, global warming or, you know, something about the AIDS crisis. Or, and these are important critical topics. But, you know, my students, you know, that you can just see the eyes roll into the back of their heads. And <laughs> so I started in my, especially my the second semester, English 102, uh, we talk uh, a little bit about UFOs. Well, what do you think about those things? Uh, how would we know? Is, is that really, you know, is this good or bad? And it's, um, it's always fun to do that with them. And it does let us then do some serious discussion about the nature of what is truth. How do we come to that understanding? Or is just what somebody puts up on the internet? Is that true? I've read it on the internet. I guess it's true. And, you know, that's kind of where we are today. People will, you know, just buy anything. And we, we do want our students to be a little bit more demanding. And it, this lets me kind of follow an interest of mine, but also do some things with my students that are fun. Well, I had no idea we were going to get into fake news on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast, but of course it is a, a matter of great interest to uh, anyone who uh, is in the political system today or watching uh, what is going on. Uh, there, there's so much examination of that. There are books and books written about it this year alone. And I just saw something I want to share with you that, um, and I just ha have read this about a professor, I think at the University of Michigan, who is uh, teaching along these same lines of, uh, she eventually gets to the point of uh, what's, what is the truth? Mm -hmm. You raise that question, and you know, what is fake and what is not? Um, I've tried to, uh, to teach uh, my classes in first sourcing the information. Don't just take it off the internet and repeat it. Um, and what she, her coursework, which I think I'm going to adopt a little bit of, and I might borrow some of yours too, is to have the, the students uh, make up a, a story and then try to promote it and sell it as, as news or as the truth. And the various and sundry ways that, that she does that and uh, I, I, I just uh, have uh, learned of that. So you're, you're sort of doing the same thing in your The Truth is Out There, UFOs, Monsters, and Cryptids in Kentucky Lore. Right. I um, um, Not only in my classes, but just in, in reading and, and studying around, uh, Kentucky has some remarkable cases. Uh, they occurred in the Commonwealth. Uh, they're cited all the time in the literature, and they're really hallmark cases. And one of them that's my favorite uh, it's called the Kelly Hopkinsville incident, and it occurred when I was a little baby, uh, but it was only a few miles from where I actually was, although I was only about 10 months old at the time, down in western Kentucky, and there's this farm family, and they're outside of Hopkinsville, heading north out of town in a small community called Kelly, and it's I think it's still there as far as I know, but they were... Um, having a, a family get together. There were seven or eight adults and a handful of children. And it was a hot summer night. It was August of 1955. And they um, went out and the two men went out. They had to get some water from a well. They were doing some cooking or something. And um, they saw um, something go over a UFO or something. Well, they came back in. They're telling everybody in the house, well, I, th I think I saw one of them things. What do you think about those UFOs? <laughs> and so they're all talking about it. And then they start looking out, and they start seeing some kind of a creature. Uh, they said it's about three feet tall and, you know, you know your basic alien coming <laughs> up the driveway. And so here they are. This is western Kentucky. It's 1955. Everybody's, you know, it's all in the newspapers. People are talking about UFOs. So being Kentuckians, they got their shotguns and pistols and everything and opened up on these things. So there's all this gunfire. 
and they see them in a window, so they're shooting out the windows, and they hear them on the porch, so they're shooting through them. So they're, you know, every everybody's nightmare is, you know, don't you hate it when you run out of ammunition when something like that happens? You're being attacked by aliens. Darn it, it's an alien. Darn it, I, I'm told I need to get, get more bullets. So anyway, they grabbed the kids, they ran out, and they had a truck and a car, and they pile everybody in the car, take off into town, and they get to the sheriff's office in the in Hopkinsville, and the um, the police got them calmed down, and, and uh, you know, the skeptics say, well, they've been drinking, but they, these <laughs> They were not drinking. They they were they were honestly scared. So some state police officers respond. The Hopkinsville City Police. They had some MPs from Fort Campbell just down the road, and they comb over this place and they don't find anything. They don't find any bodies. They don't find any UFOs. It's just a lot of empty shells. The house has been shot to pieces. And you know, my father used to say about things like that. You know, Kentuckians don't shoot at things. Kentuckians shoot things. <laughs> so if these country folks were shooting at something, we should see some bodies out there. And so I don't know what happened. I was a little baby. I wasn't, of course, wasn't there. But that one has always fascinated me. I would love to be able to get in a time machine and go back to Kelly, Kentucky, and try to stay you know, behind the shooters. But what were they seeing? And Joe Nickel, who is uh, was Skeptical Inquirer, he believes that they were seeing a, an owl and that they, these guys were shooting <laughs> at owls. And he may be right. I, I wasn't there. I don't know. Yeah. But I would love to see. So that one story when you were 10 months old, but uh, obviously you learned it uh, when you were a child, <laughs> I, I would imagine. And, and that that spurred an interest in a lot of other uh, stories that uh, you can tell us uh, about uh, Kentucky lore. Well, yes. I, I, I want to, when we have our meetings with the Humanities Council, if I'm, I've, got, I've got three uh, UFO cases. That's one of them I want to talk about. And three cryptids that I want to talk about. So, and I think if we, these are examples of the kinds of things that, that come up. And I have colleagues who teach folklore studies. And, you know, a lot of these fall into a category of a folklore motif. And there's, I'll give you an example of that. Um, near Louisville, as you're coming in on I-64, um, just as you come to the outer beltway, the Snyder Expressway, if you get on the Snyder going south, that next exit if you get off, there's a little road that goes down. There's a park down there. It's a Poplick Road. Mm -hmm. And there's a CSX bridge. Mm -hmm. And under the bridge is a, supposedly, a creature called the Goat Man. Mm -hmm. And the Goat Man haunts this bridge. And he lures people out on the bridge. And it's an active railroad bridge. And people have literally been killed looking for Goat Man. So the Goat Man legend is, you know, the Internet's just full of this. Well, there are, in fact, people who have met their, their fate because they get out on, and it's posted, they're big, they have to climb over a fence, the railroad company will arrest you if you go out there, so any listeners do not go out there. I'm sorry I told exactly where that was. But, um, <laughs> I, I do know exactly where he is. <laughs> <laughs> um, not too long ago, a young couple, uh, why would you even do that? They walked out on this posted railroad bridge. Well, here comes a train. Well, there, there's no place to go. And the young woman was hit and killed, and the young man managed to hang on. But um, here's uh, somebody who was down there looking for the goat man. Um, now, that's where the story kind of begins and ends. And people who live in Jefferson County, they'll all, oh, yeah, I know about the goat man. I, I, when I was in high school, we... well, it is a high school story. It's something people tell around the campfire. I believe the goat man is a troll. He, he hangs out under a bridge. He lures people across his bridge. He's... You know, he's a demonic, and people who are from 
Western Europe, you know, that's something that people from Great Britain and Ireland and, you know, France and Germany, they, they're scared of bridges. And they've told stories for centuries and centuries about trolls that live under bridges. The goat man's a troll. And that folklore motif goes as far back as we can look in, uh, um, in, in folklore studies and, and in history. So tell me another one. Um, well, another one is, um, well, that was one of the cryptids. Um, another one is a, um, uh, this is another one of my favorites, uh, the wolfman, mm-hmm. a werewolf. And uh, if you've driven up and down I-64 at all, you may know the exit, Wadi Potona. Well, at the great community of Wadi, Kentucky, there's a cryptid known as the Wadi Werewolf. And evidently people driving along on I-64, now I've never seen this, so I'm just, I'm taking part in a folklore transmission here. Uh, But they they see this thing uh, along the interstate, or if they get off the interstate going into uh, beautiful downtown Wadi, uh, which is, I think, basically an intersection of two state roads and a service station, and they do have a uh, U.S. post office there, and a handful of houses. Um, An animal along the side of the road crouched over, and one person turns the other in the car and do you see that's some kind of big dog? That's a really big dog. What kind of dog is that? At which point, the animal stands up, looks at him, holding prey in not paws, but some kind of hands, puts a prey under its arm, and then runs on two feet across the field and into the woods. At which point, the people in the car freak out and, you know, everything goes, you know, ah, and they go. When to was this last reported? Um, the Wadi, uh, just in the over the past 10 years or so. I mean, that's not time back, way back. But there are stories of Kentucky wolfmen that go way back to something called, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the name. Uh, let me kind of consult here if I can call that up. Um, what was it sort of our version of Bigfoot? Well, it's um, it's related to the Bigfoot. They call it Berzilla. That's oh, what I was searching okay. for. And Berella or Berzilla is um, kind of a mix between a bear and a, and a wolf. The, the crucial thing about these dogmen is that they they have a canid face and they have pointed ears uh, they have glowing eyes and they're a slender almost bony kind of a thing and now people see bigfoot in fact there was something on the news just um, uh, yesterday uh, this couple were camping in uh, Mount um, uh, mammoth cave state park and this man comes up to him and he says i my camp was just attacked by a family bigfoot you guys need to get out of here and so they didn't argue with him and i think he also had a gun so they didn't want to argue about that <laughs> so they get on the phone they call the, the rangers and they hike out to the parking lot and the rangers come in and um they have started they don't see anything they haven't found any now, i don't know if they even found the guy that reported it or not but the the couple that were scared um were really and this would be my situation. They were more scared by the human that they encountered who was armed and uh-huh. running around kind of wild-eyed than they were of, of Bigfoot. But those reports come in all the time. That was one just this week. Uh, but people routinely see uh, or at least report Bigfoot and in places like Henderson down in far western Kentucky along the river. Anderson County, of all things, um, not too far from, you know, mm-hmm. the, well, in the bluegrass area, in the heart of the bluegrass. And then, of course, as you would expect along the Appalachian Trail and people out in eastern Kentucky where the mountains and, you know, there are just miles and miles of woodland. And, you know, if you believe in some kind of large, hairy, two-legged thing, that would be where I would look for it. It would be somewhere in Appalachia. But even in my home county, down in Muhlenberg County, along the Green River, there have been some reports of people. Uh, these are sportsmen. They're, they're out on the river. They're fishing. Um, they're, they're duck hunting. They're somewhere down in, usually in the, the bottoms or the wetlands. And they, they encounter something that, and they'll swear. And these are outdoors people. You know, I'm a, I'm a, 
English teacher. I've been spent my life in the library. You know, I, I could be fooled easily, but these are men and women who have been in the outdoors all their lives. And they say it was not a bear. It was not the rear end of a deer or an elk or anything. It yeah. was not human. And so they, they, and these people would pass a lie detector test. I mean, they would, they would just absolutely be well, okay. As there are ghost hunters who uh, investigate uh, sightings and paranormal activity, have you ever done the same with interviewing people uh, that have seen one of these creatures? Well, I have never gone out looking for them uh, because uh, I would be, I'm a real coward. You're an English so, teacher. <laughs> I'm an English teacher. I'm, you know, I, I want to talk to someone who, someone else who did yeah. that. Uh, I have, um, since I've you know been kind of researching this and talking to this, I've run into a number of people. My wife, Marie Mitchell, and I were at the Kentucky Book Fair a few years ago. And um, this man came up to us and we had this, a book that had a Bigfoot on the cover. And um, he said, well, have you ever seen one of those things? And I said, well, I, I was at, and he had this story about being somewhere, you know, along the, um, the Licking River, I think. And, and he was running a trot line and it was, you know, early morning, he was, he was pulling in the line and over there, I guess, brushing his teeth, whatever Bigfoot's do in the morning <laughs> and getting ready to make his morning coffee. Yeah. He saw a big creature over there. So, you know, you just, you run into people and I mean, he was not trying to sell me anything. He, he was just straight up. I said, I, I saw one of those things. And again, this man was an outdoorsman. He, he would be unlikely to be fooled. So I don't know what he saw, but he, he swears that it was a well, Bigfoot. It, it sounds uh, interesting, and um, uh, I would like to hear more. But I also want to talk to you about uh, your second talk for Kentucky Humanities uh, beginning right now, uh, the Who Done It caper. But um, in, uh, you mentioned Marie uh, Mitchell, who happens to be uh, in the podcast studio with us this afternoon. Marie, uh, long time on WEKU. Uh, a lot of people remember your reporting and your voice and all of that. And, and you are, uh, we didn't, I, I failed to really acknowledge that you are also a part of our Speakers Bureau when we began. And you are, and, and I'm going to have you back soon to talk about uh, what uh, you're going to impart to our, our audience. But uh, the Who Done It caper, uh, Dr. Smith, is really um, your your fascination with uh, being an English teacher, <laughs> with, with writing, and and uh, uh, but I'm I'm gonna guess a fascination maybe early on when you were I'm, this is a guess uh, when you were uh, younger uh, as a kid reading maybe the Hardy Boys. The Hardy or, Boys, that's right. Yeah, I ran across at a you know um, kind of a yard sale sort of thing, some old, that Franklin Dixon, the old Hardy Boys covers. And I bought two or three of those. And um, I would probably not enjoy them today. I mean, I did read through one know. of them, but you never know. Yeah. I mean, they, they're still in print after, you know, well, these many years. But yeah, I, I, I read those when I was a kid. And Nancy Drew, The Girl Sleuth, I read Nancy Drew's because don't want to be sexist here. Nancy Drew was uh, equally interesting. And then that led on to, um, mysteries that were written, you know, for grown-ups to read, and Agatha Christie, and Dorothy Sayers, and, and then Raymond Chandler, and, and some of the American hard-boiled. So I, I've really enjoyed that all my life. And you were reading that uh, for pleasure. Right. Uh, and I would imagine you've, uh, and you, I think you told me earlier off mic that you've incorporated some of that in your teaching and, and uh, in, in what you're doing in the classroom. Well, I, I, I really like to because uh, one of the things that um, some of the writers did in, in Great Britain, Dorothy Sayers, and in America, Raymond Chandler, they wanted to write a novel that it was a detective novel, and they had a crime, and they had a detection, but that it was a good novel. 
not just a good genre novel, but something that would stand alone really as a piece of literature. And um, this is controversial, and I have colleagues that think, well, it's, you know, it, it's like writing a, a Western or a sci-fi, or it's a, it's a genre, and you can have a good, mm -hmm. but it's a genre novel. It's never going to be serious fiction, but I think that those two, you know, Dorothy Sayers wrote a novel called The Nine Tailors, and I think that's a good novel. I think the nine tailors and there's a murder and we've got a detective and I mean it's got all the bells and whistles that you expect from a novel but it's it's interesting you'll never forget who did it it's an absolutely unique thing an interesting clue sequence and then um, Raymond Chandler wrote a number of novels and he influenced a lot of later writers and I I tell my students I said well you know if you if you read this um, all of you kind of know this detective you know, he's, he's a kind of a tough talking, he wears a, a trench coat, he's got a fedora, he's got a luger and a shoulder, and they're, they're all, oh yeah, 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 we, we know that, that's, a, that's Philip Marlowe. Mm. You know, he's a, a good man in a bad town, mm. and he's going down those mean streets of Los Angeles, and, and it's just become part of American culture. So we, we, even if we're not reading that particular novel, that particular author, um, we're aware of that as, as a cultural phenomenon. How long have we been writing and reading detective stories? Well, um, going back to the Bible, um, Cain and Abel. Uh, God wants to know who killed, you know, who killed your brother. And, you know, Cain says, well, not me. You look at me. And God, of course, being God, it didn't take him long to figure it out. But um, that was a crime and punishment situation. Cain is banished. Um, Hamlet, um, Shakespeare, that's a murder mystery. Who killed the old king? And, you know, Hamlet's told right at Act One, you know, that it's his ghost, Hamlet's father's ghost, and he's got to follow the clue sequence. He doesn't believe the ghost. If he believed the ghost, he would just go kill Claudius and that'd be the end of the play. It'd be a really short play. Um, but he, he tries to prove it to himself. So that's, that's, kind of a murder mystery. Um, one of the first modern mystery writers was Edgar Allan Poe. And he wrote M. Auguste Dupin, the three or four short stories featuring this detective. And when Arthur Conan Doyle sat down to create Sherlock Holmes 50 years later, the Sherlock Holmes character in Watson and that whole environment is very heavily indebted to Edgar Allan Poe. So it's really, in a way, we think of Sherlock Holmes and British detective fiction, but they owe a heavy debt to, uh, so it, it's got an American uh, origin, American roots. If you were going to suggest uh, to our listeners uh, in, in the early period that you're talking about, when, when Chandler was writing and, and others, if you could just name, I'll just, I won't make this that difficult, one or two of, of of sort of the best uh, detective story writers, uh, either the novel itself or series, uh, mm -hmm. who, who would you suggest that someone could go back and, and pick those up? Well, of course, I, I love Raymond Chandler, and he's got his two early ones, The Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely, are my two favorites of Chandler. He, he wrote seven or eight novels, but those are my two favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, Dashiell Hammett, mm -hmm. another American writing in the 20s, um, The Thin Man is one of my favorites that Dashiell Hammett mm -hmm. wrote. He's got a, a number of novels, and uh, but they're kind of fun. They're sort of period pieces now because we're so many years removed from it, but they're a lot of fun. He's an interesting writer. On the British side, I really like Dorothy Sayers um, 
And um, I, I think any of her Lord Peter Whimsey novels, The Nine Tailors being the most famous, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, uh, let's see who... That's a good variety there and a good selection mm-hmm. uh, using American and, and, and British. Um, of those that you mentioned, who is writing today that you've either read or not, but you're familiar with them, that has created a character, a, 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 a detective, a police uh, officer uh, uh, that, that you admire? And, and how different are they uh, knowing that someone wrote many, many years ago and now you're looking at somebody who's writing today? Well, I'll tell you a writer who has Kentucky background, Kentucky roots that I really admire is Sue Grafton. Mm-hmm. And she just passed away last year. And she, your listeners may be familiar, you know, A is for Alibi, B is for Burglar, you know, the ABC mysteries. And she got all the way to... She, Z. Z. She did. I she don't think she got... The one. The one. She did yeah. not finish the Z. And yeah. So that's where it, it ended. Mm-hmm. But... Um, so Kenzie Milhone was Kenzie her Milhone. protagonist, and she was uh, she she sort of represented uh, what to you? Well, my interest in that is when I was doing research on Raymond Chandler, is that uh, Sue Grafton specifically said that she was influenced by Chandler, ah. and you know, of course, Kenzie Milhone, her detective, is a female, but she is also a loner. Uh, she lives in a small apartment, and where Raymond Chandler plays chess. You know, Kinsey has this little tiny garage apartment, and but she has some friends that she depends on, and uh, she's living in a not in L.A. but she's in California, and mm-hmm. and it's um we're, it's in a first person narrative, so we we're listening to Kinsey tell the story just like we listen to mm-hmm. uh, Philip Marlowe tell mm-hmm. tell those Chandler novels, and I, I I enjoyed how she did that, and there are a number of people. Um, John D. MacDonald, who was writing in the 50s and 60s, uh, Travis mm-hmm. McGee novels, mm-hmm. um, he was trying to sort of update a more gritty um, detective, and Travis McGee doesn't mind hurting people, and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, a, it's a different 1960s, 1970s kind of take on it. But a lot of people who are writing a Ross MacDonald, a different MacDonald, but mm-hmm. uh, he wrote the Archer novels. Um, he, admit, he admitted, or admitted, not admitted, he acknowledged... Mm-hmm. I should have said mm-hmm. uh, a heavy debt to, to Chandler. So some of these writers that um, are trying to write in the modern vernacular, they, they have to look to a model. Mm-hmm. Well, what model do they look to? Well, they very often they look to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and some of these people back in the day. What about even uh, more modern today? Somebody like a, a Lee Child or a um, trying to think of somebody else who writes. Uh, Grisham really, I mean, he's had characters, but they really weren't detectives that yeah. I remember in, in most right. of his early stuff. Can you think of somebody else that... Um, well, I tell you another one that I really enjoy, and uh, this man passed away a couple of years ago, but his, his daughter, I think, is continuing the series, is Tony Hillerman. Mm-hmm. And Tony Hillerman uh, uh, lived out, lived all of his life, I think, in New Mexico, but his detectives are uh, in the Navajo Tribal Police. Mm. And so the, the novel will open, and there's a murder, and they call in the FBI because it's on federal land. And so the FBI is there, and they're doing all this CSI stuff. And the two Navajo detectives are looking at this body, and they're looking at the crime scene. And the FBI is running around taking lab samples and everything. The two Navajos look at each other, and they're going, witchcraft. <laughs> it's a skinwalker. Who's this guy kin to? Who's, who's he? Yeah. What's his outfit? Well, he's kin to this so-and-so up on Slip Rock. Okay, uh, fellas, we'll see you in a minute. We'll be back just shortly. And they get in their car and go arrest the, the murderer. So in chapter one, 
they know what's going on because they're Navajo and they understand the background of it. But it, it spools out into other things and it usually turns out to be a much more complex. Yeah. I love that. One of the things I like about Chandler is the, the environment. He creates that 1930s, 1940s Los Angeles. And I think Tony Hillerman creates what is it like to live on the big res and, and that, that sound of Navajo speech. Mm-hmm. And he was not himself a Navajo, but he was uh, adopted and, you know, kind of like someone become maybe a Kentucky colonel or something. Yeah. You know, they, they made him an honorary member of the Navajo Nation. We're finishing up our conversation with Dr. Mason Smith uh, from Eastern Kentucky University, a new member of our Speakers Bureau at Kentucky Humanities. Uh, a couple of, we've had a, a great time talking, uh, but I'm not going to let you go without uh, a little bit of uh, conversation. I, I, I admire uh, and you articulate so well uh, what your expertise is, but I, I, I sense in you a real um, knowledge about writing and and creating, and you've done that uh, in a series of of novels that you and others have put together. Um, and it's such a I, I had recalled this earlier, uh, but um, honestly have not read them. But now we'll pick up one or two. Uh, you, you have a book sale. You brought one with you, didn't you? No, I'm just no. kidding. No, no. <laughs> Um, but this is a, uh, you've been part, uh, along with Marie, of a writing team with uh, Charlie Sweet, uh, Hal Blythe, um, and uh, the late uh, Richard Given. Is that the way you pronounce his yes, name? Yes, Richard Given. Uh, you've produced, if this is uh, current, seven mystery supernatural novels set as the fictional Clement in uh, Clement County, Kentucky. Tell us, tell us about this. Well, we um, were part of a... Uh, what we call a creative community, and um, we decided that uh, we would wanted to write a novel. And we had been submitting short stories here and there, and and that's a lot of fun. But we thought, well, you know, we're all writers, and we should be able to do this. So uh, four or five years ago, we sat down, and um, we already had kind of in the some of the other fictional things who created this environment, Clement County and Woodhole, Kentucky, and so we um, we just took off, and Marie and I were writing chapters about Bigfoot and um, some of these bad guys, and there are a lot of mischievous people in Clement County. They're, they're all up to something. Well, these bad guys are running these different scams, and they're being you know, bashed up, and, and uh, things are being torn up, and they think it's some other bad guy trying to horn in on their territory. What they don't know is that it's a bunch of wild Bigfoots that are kicking everybody around. Uh-huh. So they, well, strangely, they had not, never thought of that. So Marie and I are writing the, the Bigfoot chapters and the things having to do with uh, cryptids and weird stuff. And Charlie Sweet and Hal Blythe, who have a, a long history of, they used to write the uh, Mike Shane uh, mystery magazine. They, they wrote the novella every month of 40 or 50,000 word novella that led that magazine. It's a tab, uh, not tabloid, but a, a digest size magazine um, every month for several years. Um, they're, they're more interested in hard-boiled detection. So they, they had the, the big baddie and the detective, and so we managed to meld those together, and we came to the final conclusion. We had a, had a great time, thought, well, that's a fun novel to put up on Amazon. So um, it's listed under the name Quinn McAllister. So if you're looking for that novel, you wouldn't look for Mason Smith or Marie Mitchell, although it's supposed <laughs> to key you in, but yeah. Quinn McAllister is the author's name because there were five of us working on it at the time. And you're still writing? I think you were telling me that, uh, is this the ninth coming out or or the 10th in 2020? We have um, we have the 10th that is, uh, okay. we've submitted to a, a, 
a new agent. We're trying to get that placed, but we do have nine that are available on Amazon. So, and you don't have to read them in order, but um, all of them have some kind of a supernatural element. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, the first one was uh, Bigfoot. The second one, uh, Wicked Design, uh, had to do with, there may or may not be UFOs over Clement County. And there was a werewolf one, surprisingly enough. So depending on the novel, but they, they're, they're a lot of fun. And Marie and I enjoyed working with Charlie and Hal and with the late Rick Given. And so it was a lot of fun to do. And I hope readers enjoy them too. Will you continue to write, whether it is in this series or as a team? Or on your own? Well, I'm sure we'll continue to write. Marie and I have written some one-act plays that have been produced in Berea. The um, Spotlight Acting School has done those, and that's a hoot to have done a, a short, and they're not too long. You know, I think mm -hmm. we're limited to 15 pages of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, play text. There's mm -hmm. a lot of white space mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. um, but they run, you know, 20 or 30 minutes or something like that. And to, to watch uh, something that you had written brought to life mm -hmm. by an actor so um, if we, we may continue to do some plays. Um, um, we do have a, a Bigfoot play that we worked on. Not that that's an obsession of ours, but uh, <laughs> it's called A Midsummer Night Squatch. And it's about a group of people running amok in the woods and, and encountering not Oberon and Titania, the king and queen of the fairies, but Bigfoot. <laughs> when, when can we uh, look forward to seeing that? Well, I'm hoping we can get it placed up. Strangely enough, people don't seem to want to produce a Bigfoot play. I don't know what's I wrong with that. I can't imagine. What, what, what are, what's wrong with what's the wrong theater with today? I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's been delightful to talk uh, with you. And, and Marie is in, as I mentioned, in the studio with us. And we'll, we'll uh, catch up with her later in the fall. Uh, we wish you the best on the road and hope you get a lot of bookings. And uh, once again, thanks, uh, Dr. Mason Smith, for joining us on Think Humanities. Okay, thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.